Let's talk about Joel a little bit. I uh, gave you on your homework that was not homework sheet. I put the date on there as 592, but this is one of the ones that I'm the least confident in. The historical situation for, for Joel is probably in this gap right before they fall to Nebuchadnezzar. I don't think Joel gives us enough specific time markers to understand uh, what he's talking about. We can make some educated guesses, but I don't think any of them are a slam dunk. And theologically, this is not a problem. It would only be a problem if Joel were claiming to speak into a particular time that we later, through historical study, figured out could not be true. That would be a problem if the Bible were saying something that's not true. When the Bible says something ambiguous, not only is that not a problem, but that itself should tell us something. The fact that Joel is written in such a generalized way probably means something theologically. It probably means that what the Lord has to say about this applies more broadly to lots more moments in the history of his people than just the one moment where Joel was speaking and writing. And when you get into Joel and you figure out what the topic is, that story checks out. The topic is the day of the Lord. There are lots of times in Israel's history where it's appropriate for them to get a pretty direct, robust lecture on the day of the Lord and living as people for whom that day is a promised reality rather than living as people who have no idea what's going to happen in the future. So that, that's the way I read Joel, is that it is about the day of the Lord. It's about the two aspects, both the judgment and devastation and the mercy and salvation that are present in the day of the Lord. And remember, Joel, fitting in the Old Testament tradition of progressive revelation, where God speaks more clearly over time, he speaks very clearly in Jesus, that the day of salvation has come in Jesus. He also speaks very clearly through Jesus that there is another day out in the future that we look forward to as that last day. But for people in this period of history, it looks like all of that is mashed together into one event and into one day. And then it's not until later that God will give more clarity that we understand. No, actually, salvation comes in Christ. But this other day, this great day of the Lord is a is a even forward-looking event from that. But for Joel, for all the minor prophets, it kind of gets mashed into one. All right, how does Joel begin? So let's look at this. Uh, somebody read, uh, Justin, will you read one through, let's go to six. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten, and what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all of you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. 
Before we get into the explaining the detail of the text, let's just talk for a minute about what's happening. Because Joel begins with an invasion of locusts. And a reasonable question is, are these literal locusts or are these, as some have suggested, symbolism for an invading army? And you've got some uh, facts on both sides of the scale here. Uh, Verse two, you heard Justin say that nothing like this has ever happened before. Well, they'd seen locusts before. (laughs) They'd seen locusts bring devastation on the land and on the crops before. And there's certainly other places in the Old Testament where locust imagery is used for human armies. There is, at the, at the very end there, actually, Justin, would you read verse 6? Did I have you read 6? Yeah. yeah. Read 6 again. Uh, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. So that's, that's military language there at the end of that. And we, we have to remember, in one sense, it doesn't really matter because they're both accomplishing the same thing. The theological purpose of both is judgment, that God is sending a destructor to bring judgment on his unfaithful people. And so whether that's locusts or human army, we can talk about that, but it's a little bit a secondary issue because the primary issue is the Lord sending judgment on his people. I'm inclined to think that these are actually locust locusts, not army locusts, because the verses he read about how the locusts behave, they behave like locusts. They behave in a, a literal manner for locusts. They eat stuff up. The promise restoration, when we get to chapter 2 later, the way it's going to describe the way the Lord restores this situation is an undoing of the locust damage. And so that suggests that the damage that was happening was actual locust damage. And if you try to put this, and I say this with some trepidation given the uncertainty I have about the dating. But if you do try to put this in, in chronological order, where Joel fits, the way I have with this date, this is what Amos warned the people about. In Amos 7, he said that the Lord was going to send a plague of locusts and bring this kind of destruction. And if Joel comes after that, in that intermediate period, then this could well be a a repeat of that, the the fulfillment of that when it actually comes. And as you read the account of Joel, it just seems incredibly literal. It seems like locusts are what we're talking about here. And the kind of destruction and devastation that they bring is not invading army language. We have that in lots of other uh, minor prophets. But here seems like locust language. So it's a good reminder that the Lord can use and does, can and does use every element of his creation to serve his purposes. We were talking a couple prophets ago, if you can remember a month or so back, the, the, the confusion of Habakkuk that the Lord could possibly use these wicked nations to bring judgment on his own people. And just how, how could God do that? How could he use these evil people to punish his own people? And the answer is because God can use anything he wants. <laughs> it's all his. It's all his. And when we say you intended for evil, God intended for good, yes. And sometimes that's good, like you rise to power under Pharaoh. And sometimes it's these locusts came in and ate all your stuff to try to tell you to repent because you're living godlessly. 
That's good too. Doesn't feel good. Doesn't seem good to the one who experiences it. But it is objectively good for God to discipline his children and call them to repentance. It's also objectively good for God to punish injustice and wickedness in his wrath. That is good. And so God can use all of creation. It all belongs to him. All right. First points. This is pretty simple, straightforward book about the day of the Lord and two things to say about the day of the Lord. And the first one is from the beginning of the book, what Justin read through chapter two and verse 11. So one, one to two, 11 talks about the day of the Lord as a day of devastation. Andrew, will you pick up at verse seven and read from one seven to the end of the chapter? Yeah. It has laid waste to my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. It's a day of devastation and calamity. It starts out with what Justin read, this this description of the locusts. They swarm the vegetation quickly, they they bring total devastation. The closest parallel we have as a part of normal contemporary life is when you see the pictures or the video of the towns that were wiped out by wildfires or things like that. It's hard for us to imagine, but that is the effect of locusts on this world, is they come in and everything is gone. Everything. It's, It's absolutely unbelievable. It is total devastation. So chapter one is this call to communal lament because of the total devastation. And he emphasizes a few things. He emphasizes the severity, obviously, of this plague. He emphasizes the totality of the damage. Didi, will you read verse four again? What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. Four different words for locusts in the same verse. This kind of representation of, of, of horses, chariots, flame of fire, powerful army. Just the, the power the, of this, this plague and the totality of the damage that it brings. And then in the next section of verses, the emphasis is not just on the, the, the depth how intense is the destruction, but it's actually on the breadth, how widespread in human life is the destruction. So what does it talk about in verse five? 
Who's impacted? The drunkards. The drunkards. What about eight and nine? About 11 and 12. That's 13, 14. 11 and 12 is farmers. All right, so you got the drunkards, you got the people, you got the farmers, you got the priests. It, it goes broad. Every area of life, every type of person, every vocation, every, every worldview, which is what I think the drunkards are about. I think the word for drunkards there is, is like a reveler's word. Even people who are indifferent to the thing itself nonetheless experience the, the total devastation. The people who say, that doesn't affect me, it affects them. <laughs> it is total devastation. And so every area of life is affected. And there is this, this holistic call <laughs> to lament. The entire community is called to lament because of this devastation. So when an event of great devastation like this takes place, the natural question of all humans is, what does this mean? What, what does this mean? Isn't that what we say to God when bad stuff happens and significant stuff happens? And then something this significant, we say, what does this mean? And the answer there is verse 15. Ken, would you read 15 again? 115. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And read chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on thy holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. What does this plague mean for God's people? The day of the Lord is coming. You are not living as though there is a great day of the Lord. And that is a problem for you. Wake up. Pay attention. Sound the alarm. Listen, people. You should live as if this day is really coming. And in fact, God is incredibly gracious to send this type of destruction. The, the, the Babylonian captivity, the, the Egyptian siege of Jerusalem. Uh, all of these events that Israel thinks, oh, this is the worst thing that could ever happen. And God is saying, no, I'm trying to get you to wake up to the fact that there is a worse thing that can ever happen, which is for you to be found godless in the day of my coming. That's where you don't want to be. And all of this other stuff is just to kind of show you what bad looks like <laughs> to wake you from your stupor and to pay attention. There's a great, uh, Daphne, will you read chapter two, verse 11? Isn't that really the question? When you, when you experience something so powerful, so outside of your control, that it can only be the hand of God. All of it is only the hand of God, but sometimes it takes really big stuff for us to admit and acknowledge that because we are deceived into thinking that we have so much control over our lives and what's happening. And something major that even we have to admit 
I can't stop a tsunami, can't stop a plague of locusts, <laughs> can't stop a worldwide pandemic. God does this thing. And you're supposed to look at that and say, if I can't stop this, what chance do I have against the army of the Lord? When the Lord comes in his judgment, when the Lord comes on that great day to make things right, I mean, what, what are people thinking, imagining that they're going to be in some sort of bargaining position with God at that point? That they're going to have this, this track record of being nice to their neighbor that is somehow going to satisfy the wrath of a perfectly holy God. I mean, it, I, Isaiah was not a particularly unrighteous dude. I, Isaiah was a pretty good God-following kind of guy. And he sees this little tiny glimpse of the train, of the robe, of the glory of God. And he thinks he's dead. Well, that's it. That's it for me. I've seen the Lord. I'm done. And so the idea that anybody thinks they could withstand the army of the Lord, Joel thinks is insane. He says, look look at the encampments. This is the Lord's army. And you're going to do, you're going to do what? You couldn't even withstand these locusts. They utterly destroyed you. And you think when the Lord comes in his glory, you're going to be in some powerful defensive negotiating position? It's absolute madness. And so the day of the Lord is a day of devastation to take quite seriously. So the natural response to that then is, what do I do about it? What can I do about this day of the Lord? I obviously am not going to be in a position to resist the Lord. If you have any self-awareness whatsoever, I hope you recognize that you're not going to be in a position to make a case based on personal holiness. Uh, So what am I going to do instead? And Joel picks up chapter 2, beginning with verse 12. Karen, will you read 12 through 17? So what's the answer? What do we do? How will we stand on that day? Repent. Turn away from and turn toward. Turn away from living the way you want to live, trusting in self-righteousness, thinking that you're going to withstand the army of the Lord. Turn away from that nonsense and turn toward what? And this is such an amazing passage of all the things that it tells you. God is not looking for you to do and kind of the details of repentance. Joel has, I think, scripture's best playbook for how to repent. And it's this passage right here. First of all, did you notice who should repent? Verse 12. 
What people? What kinds of people? Everyone, all the peoples. What could you be doing that is more important than repentant? What could you be doing that says, you know what? I will repent later because right now I'm doing X. And surely you all understand repentance can wait when you are getting married, nursing an infant, bringing a sacrifice to the altar as a priest. And Joel says, no, set it down. Put the baby in the bassinet. Repent now, now. Call off the wedding vows for a few minutes. Repent now. Because every instinct of the fallen human being is, I will get to it later. I've got time. This is really important. You think about all the different ways in our lives that we screw up our priorities because we say, this is really important. And I know that other thing's important. I'll deal with the importance of that other thing later. People do this with their careers. People do this with disciplining their children. People do this with all sorts of things where it's, yeah, yeah, they're both important. I'll get to that one later. And what you're doing by definition is saying the thing I'm dealing with now is more important than the thing I'm dealing with later. Whether you admit it or not, that is exactly what you're saying. This is more important than that. If it wasn't, you'd reverse them. So you're making that statement. And what is more important than repentance? Lots of things in life can be important. What goes ahead of that? Zero. Ken? I was just kind of thinking along the same lines that verse 13 and 11 says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Right. So, you can see us making this big display. Oh, I'm so, oh. It's like, no, in here, dude. It's so important to God in the Old Testament. It's not an either or. It's a both and. We want to make it an either or. So we either want the big display, which is the easiest, right? No, I don't actually have to change the heart. Or we want to say we've changed the heart because who are you to judge? You can't see inside my heart. And we don't want to do any of the externals that would reveal that the heart was actually changed. I had an argument with a guy in a church a few churches ago about generosity and he said, it was like a Seinfeld moment for me, because he said the fact that his heart was so generous is why he didn't have to give to others. You need to give to others to make your heart become generous, but his heart was so generous, he didn't have to give to do that. I was like, that's some jujitsu right there. That's, yeah, all right. Hmm, not the droids you're looking for. Yeah, we want one or the other. And so Joel says, don't, don't bring this tearing your garments, sackcloth and ashes nonsense without a changed heart. And God will say in lots of other places, don't tell me your heart has changed if I can't look at your life and see any heart change, right? James makes that point very clearly. You tell me you have faith. I say, show me the works that your faith are doing. James isn't arguing with Paul. James agrees. You're saved, justified by faith alone. But James is dealing with some people who say, you don't judge my heart. I am, I am, me and God, we're like, we're like this. And James says, yeah, but why do you hate everybody? You don't, you don't judge. I got faith. Okay, show me some works that make me feel good about this faith. It's both and, and everybody has to do it. And there is nothing in your life that is happening that is more important than repentance. Not in the adults, not in the children. There is nothing in your life that is happening that is more important than repentance. And 
what, whatever mental gimmick you have to create to, to motivate yourself, to kind of prompt yourself, the most time that gets wasted in a human life is that time between when you know you should repent and when you actually do. We see this in our relationships. Marriage is the most common, but we see it in lots of relationships. In that moment where you realize this needs to be made right, and then up to the moment where you make it right, what were you doing all that time in the middle? Like, pre-gaming? Were you like, you do really psych yourself up for this one? <laughs> it wasn't the right time, right? It is the biggest waste of human life. And whatever mental model you've got to create to stop wasting that time, absolute madness. So the call for repentance is this call, Ken said, verse 13, it's this inward transformation. It's going to be manifest through a bunch of external activities. These people got to get back in church. These people are ignoring uh, temple worship. But it won't be good enough for them to get back in church. They got to get back in church because their heart changed. (laughs) These people got to start tithing again. They couldn't even rebuild, finish rebuilding the temple the second time because these cheapskates were building themselves luxury paneled houses and wouldn't give money to finish the rebuilding of God's house. There's lots of externals that need to happen in these people's lives. But Joel is saying, don't start there. Don't start with those externals. God sees right through it. Heart transformation leading to the externals. That's what repentance is. And that's why we don't like repentance. That's why we don't like sanctification. Because we want a box of of checklist items that we can go down. God, tell me the five things I'm supposed to do. And I will do those five things and tell me the five things not to do. And I'm not do those five things. And then God, I will be justified in your sight. You see, we do that. It's law written on the heart. How do we self justify before God? And God says, actually, it's a little harder than that. I'm looking for things that seem a little more vague, like love. Wait, what? Just tell me the five things I do that equal love. Sorry about that, but love. God, you got to give me more to work with here. So nope, heart transformation. Manifest out. Why will this work? Why does Joel say that repentance has a chance of working? What does he base his confidence that this will work in? It's in the end of verse 13. Yeah, I love that. Uh, almost word for word, Exodus 34, 6. But, you know, when God describes himself, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, the character of God. Again, we want to be more transactional. We want to say, God, I can trust in X because X plus Y gives me this. And here's the formula. And here's, we want to be very transactional. And God is very relational, character driven. And so when the prophets of God are saying why you should be confident that this repentance thing is going to work, they say, don't you know who God is? Look at the character of God. That's why I tell y'all again and again, when you go through dark nights of the soul theologically, when you feel far from God, when you are struggling with that relationship with God, you need to go read and study the character of God. Don't go read a book, most books, on depression or sadness or 
Go read a book on the character of God, who God is. Start with Arthur Pink's little tiny, the attributes of God. Take a chapter a day for like 15, 16 weeks. It's somewhere near that many chapters. And just read two or three pages about an attribute of God every day for two weeks and see how you feel at the end of two weeks. Because what your soul needs is not more confidence in yourself. It's, it, your soul needs a vision of who God is. All the unpleasantness we feel in life, all of our anxiety, all of our fear, all of our doubt, all of the stuff in those categories that we feel is because our vision of God is obscured. Because I promise you, if you are in a moment, and look, the Christian life, it's up and down. I'm not beating up on you for not being in this place all the time. I'm admitting to you that I do this all the time. But when you are in one of those times in the Christian life where your view of God is unobscured, you don't have any of that stuff. When you have a clear view of who God is, you're afraid of nothing. Nothing! Because what in the world could you fear? You fear God. What is left to fear? Did you hear what Joel said about the encampment and the armies? And the, that doesn't just apply against you. That applies for you. That's why Paul loses his mind in a good way, just going down this rabbit trail of what could separate us from the love of God in Christ? And that's basically a question of how powerful is God? What can undo what God wants to do. Well, not, not principalities, not, and it goes through, the, and, he just, and he gets more and more excited, so by the end of that, he's just, doxology is just flowing out of every pore in his body. If your view of who God is, is unobscured, all of those other things fade away. And they come back because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And they come back because we still have indwelling sin. And they come back because this world hurts. This world is filled with pain that's caused by our sin and by the sins of others, and it's filled with injustice. And so we go on this roller coaster ride. But the illustration my friend Doug Kelly uses all the time that I think is really valuable is instead of thinking about the Christian life as this roller coaster, think of it as the tide coming in. And yes, there will be waves that recede back. There will be times where you feel further away from God because this wave wasn't as far as the last wave. But on the whole, over the course of the Christian life, the tide's coming in. The, the lower lows should not happen later in your life as a Christian. You should be able to experience worse things when you've been in the faith 30, 50, 60 years, and you handle those things with more trust in God, more confidence than things that happened way earlier in your life that weren't really that bad. <laughs> and we look back at them now and we're like, well, I thought that was bad. Right? But that's the effect of a life in Christ is this, this tide is coming in a clearer view of God, a greater understanding of who he is, a better track record in your own life where you can look back and say, God, I've started to take for granted because I'm seeing all this junk that's happening in my life. I'm forgetting about and taking for granted all of this other blessing and history of faithfulness and track record that you have. Help me to see that better and to see that more clearly. And that comes with spiritual maturity and age and just time, time with God. So repentance 
is found in the character of God. And then what repentance does is it brings restoration. Karen, can you read 18 to 27? Chapter 2. Renee, will you read 28 to 32? Is the Lord going to restore his people materially or spiritually? Both. Both. Karen read the material restoration. The invading army will be taken away. The Lord will provide conditions in the world that yield abundance. The, uh, what the locusts destroyed will be restored. There, there are material promises there that are forward-looking, when we think about the new heavens and the new earth, it's one of the most, um, it's an area where Christians seem to be confused a lot, is the, what does eternity look like for us? And, you know, you have Hallmark cards of somehow we turn into angels, because that's a thing, and we're playing harps on class. What, what, what Bible are you reading? That, in one way, the new heavens and the new earth will look more like this life, this world, than any of us imagine. I mean, we, we will be stunned at one level of how close that is to this. We have bodies, we have flesh, we have relationships, we have jobs, we have things to do, we have hobbies. We, all of that seems to be the case in this restoration. The one thing that will be different, no sin, no curse. Just a minor tweak on our reality, Right? What does that? I have no idea. I have no idea what that changes everything. It changes everything. It's going to be incredibly similar, except totally different in every possible way. 
And so the Lord promises, he has us looking forward to this world that he made is not some suboptimal transitory state because it's material, because it's physical. It's suboptimal because of sin and the curse. And what he promises us is the world that he made without sin and the curse. That's something. And then with that comes what Renee read, these spiritual blessings that cause these upheavals in the heaven, the outpouring of the spirit, the wonders in heaven, people calling on the name of the Lord, the end of the captivity. There's both this spiritual and this physical renewal and revival. Um, and boy, that's, I mean, that, if that doesn't make you say, come Lord Jesus, <laughs> take everything you love about this life and move it forward and take everything that you don't love about this life and take all of the sin and curse out of it. Do you think we should be strongly anticipating and praying for the day of the Lord? I mean, we kind of forget about it. And if anything, I think we look at it with just a little bit of worry. Will I get to have done all the things I want to do before that day comes? I, I, you know, I really wanted to climb Everest. Y'all know that's high on my list. I, I, I really wanted to see a child get married. I really like all these things we really want to see. And we think, wow. Day of the Lord. I mean, I really want it. It's important. Could it come after this? Right? We all have a little bit of that in your mind. You're thinking about the day of the Lord wrong. You're thinking about the new heavens and the new earth wrong. Take everything about this life that you love and put it there. And now take everything about this life that is horrible and take away all the sin and the curse. And if your understanding of that is, yeah, I, I can wait. Uh, Go back again, do some rereading. You should not want to wait for this. We should be crying out, come Lord Jesus. What he describes here in Joel should fill our hearts with eagerness for Christ to return. So then Joel's laid this out. All right, great day of the Lord. It's a, it's a, it's a day of judgment. The answer to that judgment is repentance. And for those who repent, there is restoration, salvation. And so it's a reasonable question for Joel or the hearer of Joel to say, okay, to whom does this apply? Who, who goes in which bucket here in terms of outcomes? And that's what chapter three is about. Matt, will you read one through 17? I hope there's a lot of complex Hebrew names in it. sons and your daughters into the hands of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, 
to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among, among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears, let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near. In the valley of decision, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Through 17 here. So, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mount, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. So did you hear the additional language on that part and how much of it was about God's people versus not God's people. When you're asking the question of how, how do we know who's going to be who, who gets the judgment, who gets the, the, the what you have to do has been made clear, repentance. But who is going to do it? What, what, wh- how's this going to pan out historically? And God says, yeah, that's what my people look like. That's how you know you're my people. The world who hates my people, they're the ones who are going to get this great day of judgment. So the day of judgment comes for the nations. And he uses specific names, but it's not limited to those names. It does include those names. He'll wipe those nations off the, the map of history already has. But the nations, the same nations that in uh, the Psalms, you know, plot against the Lord and his anointed one, the nations, the world is going to receive this judgment. And then, uh, Crystal, will you read verse 18 through 21? So for whom is salvation coming? The people of Zion, the people of God. And it's, it's, so you go back and you think through the book of Joel, and one way of reading Joel, which is a terrible way of reading Joel and makes no sense, is to make this about national Israel, national Jerusalem, those names. But you really have to ignore the middle of Joel to come to that conclusion. Because God told you in the middle of the book what makes the difference. Rend your hearts. Repent. You want to belong to Zion? Repent. You want to belong to true Jerusalem? Repent. How do we know that we belong to God? Repentance. It's not membership in any particular club or nationality. It is repentance. From that can flow lots of external things that are visible, but it starts with the rending of 
the hearts. And the Lord's people, those who repent, are those who will be blessed. The Lord's people, those who repent, are the ones who will see their enemies perish. Verse 19, justice will come. It will come in God's time. But even here in the Old Testament in Joel, he's talking clearly about the spiritual realities that must be present for the people who are going to inherit these outcomes. And it's a great thing. We need to preach this to ourselves, especially for those of you who have children and grandchildren. And you think about the the conscience, the two kind of different extremes of conscience of young people that come up in the faith. There's the super tender consciences, the kind of bruised reed, smoldering wick child or teenager who has a lot of doubts, doubts about whether they are in Christ, doubts about whether God could really love them. And then you think about the other child on the other end, who's the 404 error, conscience not found. I don't really think about those things. I'm going on living my life. I don't know any of those people. But they both need the same thing, which is the reminder of repentance as this great thing to look for in your life. Because for the the conscience not found person, they should have a little bit of fear and trepidation if they look at their lives and don't see repentance. Don't tell your kids to look at their lives for holiness. We want holiness. Holiness will come over time by the Spirit of God. But you don't want your kids looking for holiness because you will either get self-righteous monsters or you'll get kids who throw the baby out with the bathwater and realize that the standard of holiness that their parent or anybody else is seeking is not obtainable. And so why not just fall off the other side of this equation, right? Don't, don't, don't pursue holiness with your kids as an object in and of itself. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying there, but we teach rightness in God's law and we want obedience from our children. But we're not teaching them holiness as the objective when they're kids. We're teaching them repentance. And so for that kid who is going to struggle to be godly, Repentance is this really nice checkpoint. You can tell the difference between repentance and indifference toward their siblings, indifference toward disrespect of their parents, indifference toward their responsibilities. And that's such a great thing to teach and to parent and to shepherd and to pastor because it's very simple. And you don't have to get into the complexities of morality. It can be complex. And then with the bruised reed child, Same thing. You're talking about repentance, but you're doing it for the other purpose, which is this child is looking at their holiness or their lack thereof and saying, therefore, I can't belong to God. Or they're looking at their circumstances and say, I can't belong to God because this is too hard. And if God really loved me, it wouldn't be this hard. Whatever it is that's making them doubt. I, I understand that. I understand all of what you're seeing and I understand how you feel. But do you know that's not actually how we measure whether or not we're in Christ? We measure it with repentance, which is a thing you can control and a thing you can be confident in so that when Satan accuses you, you're not, you're, and you can think to yourself, all right, let me, let me think through, is Satan right? No, I'm falling on my face before the Lord. He's right that I did that thing. He's not right what it says about me because I see that thing is wrong and offensive to the Lord and I've repented and I, that's what we should be looking for. And so in Joel, you just have this amazing connection between what we consider to be an Old Testament mentality, which is locusts and warring armies, and, and, and actually, no, God's pointing his people forward to the new heavens and a new earth, 
and he's telling you what it takes to get there, and he's therefore giving you the confidence that you need to live in a world where that doesn't always seem like it's the case.